You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. The following sermon is from our series in the book of Revelation. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the quality with her and of her sexual immorality and the kings of the power of her luxurious living. Verses 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as a father of somewhat small children, we watch a lot of Disney movies in our house, and one of the Disney princesses is Rapunzel, as I'm sure most of you know her story. And uh, one of the great things about Rapunzel is the antagonist in the book, I believe it's her godmother or stepmother, 
She's bad. That's the bottom line. She's bad, and she's somehow related to Rapunzel. And the way that um, she maintains her power over Rapunzel is that Rapunzel has magical hair, you know, and long, beautiful, flowing locks of hair. And as long as she doesn't cut her hair, her stepmother can continue to look youthful and lively and beautiful, although really she is, by this point in the story, a very old, decrepit woman. And as long as Rapunzel refuses to cut her hair, the woman uses, the stepmother uses Rapunzel's powers selfishly for her own benefit. Now, part of the purpose of the story, of course, is to do what fairy tales often do in really interesting and significant ways, and that's to remind their readers that all that glitters is not gold, as other authors have put it. That looks can oftentimes be deceiving. And in the Bible, we see similar imagery and similar thematic ideas as well. And perhaps no book does this sort of thing more than the book of Revelation. And that's what we find in our story this morning. We're approaching the end, some of you can rejoice in that, the end of the book of Revelation. And as we've worked through the cycles of the book, we've seen that as the book gets closer to its end, each cycle progresses in its intensity and also focuses a little bit more each time on the end, on the last judgment, and on the second coming of Jesus. And next week, we're going to begin looking in earnest at the final chapter of the book, which are largely about the future. They're more about the future than any other part. But today, as we look at 17, 18, and the first part of chapter 19, we're going to see two more final figures that John introduces to us and adds to the cycles and the imagery of the book. And the two figures are the prostitute, Babylon, and the bride. And these two figures contrast one another in these chapters quite vividly. And so as we look at these two figures this morning, and as we learn what they symbolize, I want you to keep in mind that these chapters were written for people in our position. They were written for all who are attempting to follow Jesus in between Jesus's first coming and Jesus's second coming. And as we see each week, the strange images and the strange language and symbols are John's distinctive way of speaking the truth to us. The truth of what the world is really like. The truth of what God is really like. The truth of what faith really looks like. And so I want us to allow these images to do their work on our hearts and on our heads and look together with you just for a few mo moments at these verses as the Spirit helps us. So here's the main idea of these chapters. Jesus calls us to re resist the seduction of affluence and trust him to be faithful to us. That's the main point of these chapters. And I just want to break that sentence into two parts, and those will be our two parts this morning. First, resist the seduction of affluence, and second, trust Jesus to be faithful. Okay? So let's dive in together for a couple of minutes. So stay focused, get attuned, let the Spirit work, say a quiet prayer, and ask God to be on the move in our hearts right now, and let's study His Word together. So as we look at chapter 17 and following, the overarching image of these initial verses is this woman who appears in verse 1 of chapter 17. And we read that she has a name written on her forehead, verse 5, Babylon the Great, it's written, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Okay, if you've been around for a while at Christ Church as we've gone through Revelation, you should be familiar by now with the idea that these are symbolic words. 
They're not to be interpreted literally. They're to be interpreted symbolically. So there's not a literal woman on a literal beast who will come one day right before Jesus returns. In fact, John, at the end of chapter 17, literally says, he literally says that this is symbolic. The woman is symbolic, verse 18. And so the question is, what does this woman Babylon, this prostitute Babylon, represent? And here's what she represents. She represents the seductiveness of affluence. Look in verse 4. There we see written, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Flip over to chapter 18, verse 7. We see she glorified herself and lived in luxury. And then verse 16, The great city was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. So the prostitute named Babylon is a symbol for prosperity, for riches, for luxury, and affluence. That is the meaning of these images of opulence and wealth that we read about here. And furthermore, if you look in verse 3, back in chapter 17, you'll see that this woman is riding on a beast. And the description of the beast matches exactly the description of the beast from the sea back in chapter 13. So if you weren't there for that, let me remind you that the beast of the sea represents human government. All empires throughout world history that have sought to see themselves as ultimate. The beast represents human, humans' tendency to empire, to totalitarian governmental structures. And so it seems here that the woman and the beast are allies. She is riding on top of the beast. You might say that the woman is the mistress of the beast. And so what this imagery is intending to communicate is that the evil one, the devil himself, he works through both of these evil agents, the beast and the woman. And, and what it really means is that with the power of empire comes the production of affluence. These two things go together. This was true in the Old Testament with empires like Babylon and Persia. It was true when John wrote in the New Testament with the Roman Empire. And it's also true in our day with the American Empire, the Chinese Empire, other massive governmental forces. The purpose of these images is to show us that the evil one can use both the brute force of the state to persecute and destroy God's people, and he can be active and use the seductive allure of riches and luxury to deceive and lull God's people into, into a sort of spiritual stupor. And you see that in the text as well. If you read or listened carefully, you'll see that the woman is constantly surrounded by two supplemental images, that of drunkenness and adultery. Look in verse 2 of 17, for example. She's seated on many waters, and with whom, with her, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. You also see that in verse 6 and verse 4 and also in chapter 18. Now, those are really powerful images. They carry a lot of freight, so to speak. And they come directly from the Old Testament, as John often does. He's pulling images from the first two-thirds of our Bibles. And the images are used, the image of drunkenness and adultery, they're used in the Old Testament, usually, to describe the faithlessness of God's people. 
They're used to describe how God's people are often seduced by worldly luxuries and privileges and pleasures. Here's the point. The point of all of these images is to say to each of us that affluence very easily intoxicates us and pulls us away from faithfulness. One of the primary Old Testament figures that exemplifies that truth is the figure of Samson. If you've been around the Bible very much, you've probably heard his story. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be familiar with Samson because he's so famous. Samson was a man given great strength, great physical strength by God, and called to follow God in a particular way. He had taken religious vows, so to speak, from his earliest days. And yet, as you read Samson's story in the Old Testament book of Judges, there are two things that constantly pull him away from faithfulness. He loves to party. (laughs) He gets drunk all the time, even though he's taken a vow to not touch strong drink. And he's constantly infatuated with the women of the Philistines. And the most famous story, of course, is the story of Samson and Delilah, where Delilah, the Philistine prostitute, is used by the Philistine rulers to seduce Samson into giving away the key to his strength, his hair. And she cuts his hair for him, and he loses his strength. And in a great tragic Old Testament story, Samson is reduced to a shell of his former strong and powerful self. Samson's story exemplifies in practical ways what Revelation is symbolizing to us through these images, and that is God's people are often tempted away from faithfulness through the allure of affluence. That's what the woman symbolizes, the seduction of affluence. But if you notice in chapter 18, verse 2, John says that Babylon, the great, another name for this woman, is fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In other words, it's all a sham. It's all a sham. What looks to us like a beautiful and captivating woman is in fact, to use the language of the scripture, a drunken whore. The allure of riches and luxury and pleasure we read here is all a lie. It's a lie that is powerfully used by the evil one to take us away from Jesus Christ. As we think about how this can work in our own lives, and our own hearts, I, I think if we're being honest, we'll have to admit that we are tempted to see the fake beauty of Babylon instead of the true beauty of Jesus and his bride. We're tempted to desire the fake satisfaction of spiritual dalliances, so to speak, with the prostitute instead of the real and pure satisfaction of marriage to Jesus. You see, what John is saying, what the scripture is saying, is that affluence... Luxury, wealth, it's like a drug. It it enslaves us so that we think we can't live without it while really it's tearing us apart from within. But the sham, the lie of affluence, the lie of its seduction is going to be exposed by God. That's why he's warning us to see it for what it is. Look in verse 4 of chapter 18. God cries out, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. 
This is a call for those who are followers of Jesus to resist, to resist the allure and the seduction of affluence, riches, wealth, and luxury. So what I want us to do is just take a moment and think together about how, how affluence dulls us and then seduces us. Think about this with me. Affluence is basically a way of us trying to save ourselves. What do I mean? If you think about it, hopefully you can follow. Think about it this way. Affluence is a way that we protect ourselves from sensing our real brokenness and therefore from sensing our real need. Affluence is a way, a very powerful way, in which the devil keeps us from the worship of God, from orienting our lives around God, which we've seen Revelation is all about. Really, affluence tempts us to ask this question of ourselves, although we do this in subconscious ways. You know, why do we need to orient our lives around God when we have basically everything we need and want right here, right now? That's the question that affluence prompts in our lives. And listen, folks, listen. In modern-day America, many of us, I dare say most of us, if not all of us, can prop ourselves up with enough comforts and wealth that our feeling of the effects of sin in this world is seriously lessened. We can surround ourselves with enough comfort, privilege, money, possessions, pain relievers, intoxicants, and distractions that our experience of our own brokenness and of the brokenness of this world is largely muted. And here's the idea. If our experience of brokenness and need is muted, then our longing for Jesus' coming is also muted. Literature often makes this point in ways that are very helpful. And uh, one of the great American novels is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I prefer Steinbeck and others, but The Great Gatsby's okay. But it makes this point well. Jay Gatsby is sort of the hero, as it were, of the book, and he loves this woman in the story named Daisy. But Jay Gatsby, despite his fabulous wealth and luxurious lifestyle, is alone and sad. And as you go through the story, you'll see that Gatsby uses his wealth and he throws these massive parties every weekend to shield himself from his own inner pain, from his own brokenness, to mute his own experience of the sinful effects of the world. And at one point in the story, he says to, to the narrator of the story, a guy named Nick, during a big party, Gatsby says to him this, You see, I usually find myself among strangers because I drift here and there trying to forget the sad things that happened to me. And I like large parties. Note the irony here. They're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. That's a great illustration of what affluence does. Affluence has a gnawing tendency to prevent us from seeing the depths of our own inner poverty, and thus the depths of our own real need for Jesus Christ's love. Why do you think it is that Jesus says in the Gospels, it is harder for, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man 
to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus say that? He doesn't say that because poor people are more righteous than rich people. No, he says it because poor people can't help but to know their own neediness and desperation. While rich people, and often Americans, can orchestrate an entire society dedicated to the idea of avoiding those very feelings. Why do you think Jesus says that? It's because Jesus knew how powerful the seduction of affluence, how powerful this prostitute Babylon can be over us. And so as the Spirit works through the Word, right here, right now, this morning, you must ask yourself as you're engaging with God, are you drunk on affluence? Have you been seduced by the prostitute Babylon? Are you believing the lie that just because you don't feel need means you don't have need? Are you believing the promises of pleasure and sensuality and prosperity or the promise of God that you are broken but he will bring restoration through the gospel? Have you been taken captive by the seduction of affluence? And if so, what is to be done about it? Well, that's what Revelation wants to get us to. So secondly, let's look at this idea. Trust that Jesus is faithful. We see that the seduction of affluence is a constant force in our lives, particularly in Western, postmodern culture. But in the midst of that, we are called by the book of Revelation to trust that Jesus is faithful. Look at chapter 19. The first 10 verses really give us the judgment of God on Babylon. The, the fact that Babylon is revealed to be a sham, as we saw earlier. And God comes and judges those who would attempt to seduce and drunken and capture his people. The seductiveness of affluence and, and those who peddle in this trade are condemned and righteously judged by God. And then we're introduced to a new image. In 19.7, we read that the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, his bride has made herself ready. And so if the prostitute Babylon represents the seductiveness of affluence, who does the bride represent? Well, the bride is the church made pure. The bride is a symbol of Christ followers who have overcome, to use Revelation's language, who have overcome the seduction of the world by God's grace. And I hope that you can see the contrast between the two women in the story. The bride is the opposite of the prostitute. The bride is presented as being clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, verse 8. Whereas the woman is full of abominations and impurities, we read. The bride is going to a wedding, 19.9. Whereas the woman is a practitioner in sexual immorality. The bride is faithful and lovely. The woman is faithless, right, and spiteful. So what's going on here with the image? I think this is striking. I find it to be profound. What we are seeing here, I think, is nothing less than the full glory and beauty of the gospel, the very heart of our faith. Here's what's happening. Jesus, the husband, will make us his bride and be a faithful husband to us, even though we have not been faithful to him. That's the point. And really, that's, that's a way of capturing the very essence of the gospel, Here's what's happening here. Jesus restores a faithless spouse. Jesus forgives and redeems an adulterous wife. 
Jesus takes the penalty for the spiritual unfaithfulness of his own bride, even though he is innocent and she is guilty. Part of what the scriptures are pressing on us is to see that we are all, to some extent, under the seductive power of Babylon. We are all faithless to Jesus to some degree or another. We are all seduced by the woman. But Jesus pulls us out of that by his love and remakes us. That is the gospel. That's what the whole Bible points us to, by the way. We see here a culmination of so much of the story of Scripture. That story is particularly and beautifully captured for us in some of the prophets of the Old Testament. They often use adultery and faithlessness versus faithfulness language to describe God's pursuit of his rebellious people. And so just for illustrative purposes, let me read to you two beautiful passages from the Old Testament that hopefully will fill our thinking out a little bit about what Jesus is doing for us in the gospel. First from Hosea chapter 2. Listen to this. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You see that language there. And no longer will you call me my Baal, a false god. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her to myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 54, prophesies this. This is the Lord speaking. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see this? Jesus is a faithful husband to his faithless bride. He's good to his bride. He's good to us. He will care for us. He will love us with a perfect love. What we see in Revelation is that God can and will provide in Jesus what the seductive woman, Babylon, only promises but can never really give. And Jesus has proven that he can and will do that for us. He's proven it because he gave up his affluence to save you from the seductive lure of affluence. Jesus, in the gospel, gave up the riches that were his right and became poor so that we might become spiritually rich through connecting with him by faith. Jesus refused to be seduced by the evil one so that he can rescue us when we are seduced by the evil one. Do you believe that? The gospel, according to Revelation, is that Jesus is the one who will love us with an undying, never giving up, unfailing love. The seduction of affluence tempts us with something that it can never really give us. Namely, the promise that we will have enough and be enough if we just go with her. But Jesus, the true husband, the true lover of his bride, gave up himself to really deliver on that promise. That is, Jesus, and in Jesus, 
through the love of Jesus, we are enough and have enough. The scriptures tell us elsewhere that all things are ours, and we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Do you believe that? The scriptures call you to faith and that good news. The power of the love of a faithful husband, Jesus, is the only power that can dismantle the power of the seduction of the woman Babylon. And so, as we wrap up, I just want to try and practically apply this idea in a couple of ways, and then we'll finish, okay? It's always dangerous, by the way, for a pastor to say, as we wrap up, because of check out, you know, pull out my phone, don't check Twitter, don't do it, just stay with me, a few more minutes, okay? What will it look like for you to more and more embrace the love of Jesus for you, his bride, and to resist the seductive allure of affluence? You know, here's a way to wrap up the whole idea. Is your life displaying that you are under the lure of affluence or the love of Jesus? It's one or the other. You're either under and enraptured by the lure of affluence or you're under and enraptured by the love of Jesus. And how can you sort of self-diagnose and know where you stand on this constant spectrum and process as we seek to journey after Christ? Let me give you just two ways, and there's many, but here's two. One way you can know if you're more and more under the love of Jesus as opposed to the lure of the woman is if you live below your means. Now that is a radically countercultural concept. Do you know that? I mean, our whole country is built on the idea of debt. And so when we live below our means, we are actually preaching a gospel to the world. Now, the way you use your money is preaching some sort of gospel. Do you know that? The scriptures tell us in Proverbs that the borrower is a slave to the lender. And I bet that almost all of us need less than we have. And we definitely need less than we want. And the bottom line, very practically, is this. If you spend more than you take in and have a lot of consumer debt, you are living in a way that preaches a false gospel. Listen, if you say, I am with Jesus, but your tax return and your bank statements and your credit card bill say something different, if they say, I'm discontent with what I have in life, then you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to see how you're being seduced and run after Jesus in faith and believe that he is your hope. He will give you what these things can never actually give you, although they continue to promise that. So how do you know if you're falling more and more under the love of Jesus? Well, one is you live below your means, very practically. And then secondly, you give sacrificially. And to be honest, this is nothing radical, but it's the most obvious sign. It's the number one sign. Listen, if it comes down to the end of the month and there's a limited amount of money left, what is it that gets sacrificed in your life? Is it charitable giving? Is it tithing? Is it caring for the poor and orphan? Or is it something else? And listen, if it is always giving that gets sacrificed and not spending, then you are preaching a false gospel in the way you live. I don't care what you tell me and what you tell the world. What you do with your money is speaks louder, right? And it's the same is true for me. We are under the lure of affluence more than the love of Jesus when the thing that gets cut out of our monthly living budget-wise is giving to those who have more need than we do. If it is always, when I make more, I'll give, or when I pay off debt, I'll give, or when I give more but I can't afford it, then you have to ask yourself, friend, you have to allow Jesus to critique like the actual real things in your life if you're going to follow him. 
And that's what Revelation shows us again and again and again. It's asking you to ask yourself, what in my life is getting sacrificed? You can't say I follow Jesus, but Jesus, you're not allowed to critique all these personal parts of my story. Revelation is saying, no, you need to look at yourself rightly and see how you fall under the lure of affluence, how you are being seduced by the woman, and run after Jesus in faith and in repentance. Well, what does that look like? Well, it might look like for some of us changing the way we use our money and the way we think about our resources. So those are just a couple of practical ways that we show our faith that we grow in faith, that we make ourselves ready for our wedding day, so to speak, as we are becoming the bride. Now, in all of our lives, you are either chasing after the woman and falling into her traps, or you are saving and preparing for your wedding day with Jesus. Only one of those is worth your wholehearted pursuit. So as the text tells us, clothe yourself with the righteous deeds of the saints. Get ready for your wedding. Your husband is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. Thank you that you show us the depth of your love by giving up all that was rightfully yours, Jesus, in the incarnation, in becoming a man. You emptied yourself and took the form of a servant, and you humbled yourself even to death on a cross. And you did that, God, that we might possess the fullness of your riches in glory. You did this freely of grace, not because we've earned it or deserved it or merited your favor by being religious or righteous. You did it because of the depths of your love. It flows from the very core of your being. So God, we pray that we would see that today. And as we see that, that it would draw us away from the sham of pursuing more stuff, of pursuing affluence and luxury and wealth, of falling under the seductive traps of the woman Babylon. God, we so often fail in this. And so we ask for your help. Spirit, move in us that we might see who our true husband is, that we might see who is really faithful, and that we might in turn, by your grace, pursue him with the one-minded faithfulness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.